let's stand together while we sing. Now you can be seated and turn to number 378. Number 378. I am involved. Number 378. I am resolved no longer to live. Resolved and who will go with me? 
170. 170. Oh, how he loves you and me. This will be our offertory hymn. And let's stand together as we sing, if you will. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. Before, uh, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Uh, I've got two videos I'm going to show. These are videos I made. So, uh, hey, I'm Daniel Osmond here. I'm in Nazareth. Uh, Rick, try to take a look around. Pull it around. Take a look. at This is the sights and sounds here. We are at, right outside the location of where the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that Jesus was going to be born in. Yeah, I want to invite you to pray for Nazareth. This is now a 70% Muslim uh, city. It's uh, completely changed, very Islamic, you know, very lost. So shows uh, shows you a picture of really Israel has probably changed a lot since Jesus. <clears throat> also known as the place of the Lord's Supper. So Joey, kind of take a look around here. This is the place that Jesus and his disciples had their last supper right before Jesus was arrested. I want to show you a video of this. You can see all around here. What's significant about this is every time we have our Lord's Supper at church, this is where it all started. 
This replaced the temple sacrifice as well as uh, going into the, uh, for Christians, uh, Jesus became that sacrifice. What's also powerful about this, this is where Jesus said that do this in remembrance of me. So the next time you have the Lord's Supper, you can, if you look around, here it is. Here's the upper room where it first occurred. I had my yarmulke on because our next stop was the Western Wall, so I had to get ready. <laughs> so... I want to show you that, uh, that second video there. It was the, that's the upper room where the, Jesus and his disciples had the Lord's Supper. The first video I just showed there, they showed, was there in the, um, in the, right there in the center of Nazareth. Nazareth is in northern Israel. Obviously, that's where Jesus grew up. That's where he learned his trade. It is now a Muslim city. Uh, it's, it's shocking. It's very sad. I mean, a very, very few Christians are there in Nazareth. So I want to show a couple of those videos as well. Uh, I want to read this here. We received this from our church. Um, one of our ministries we do is we help the Oneida Baptist Institute. Oneida Baptist Institute is in Clay County, Kentucky. It's in a little, a little village called Oneida. There's nothing there but really a post office in the school with that. Um, our missions team, we helped support them and we went down there. I believe it was in November, and we gave them uh, well over uh, like 120 gift cards from Walmart. And th they get them before Thanksgiving so they can go and purchase whatever food they would need. And it really helps their, uh, their staff and everything. And we received, a, our church received a thank you letter from one of their teachers. And this lady here, her name is Erica Baker. She has four children, and she teaches art and Bible. So she's the art teacher, and she teaches the Bible. She said, Dear Broadway Baptist Church family, my name is Erica. I'm one of the many that were blessed with your gift card to Walmart. Thank you for making a difference in pouring into the lives of the Oneida Baptist Institute family. Our family of six has been part of OBI for several years. Our greatest opportunity and blessings come with the chance to talk and connect with our students on a spiritual level. Whether it's talking about strengthening their relationship with Christ, working through a tough heart issue, or just giving a loving hug, I'm blessed in so many ways to be a part of this ministry. I teach art for the high school and middle school levels. I find the class opens doors to allow the students to express themselves in ways they might not in other classes. Right now, we're doing an art assignment that encourages them to share some of their life stories through art. They're asked to be very vulnerable in their art with the possibility of sharing a story verbally with their peers in an informal presentation. In the end, the students celebrate, the in the end, the students celebrate students who are courageous. The classmates come along, have come a long way of knowing one another at a deeper level. I find that this opened doors for them to be more compassionate and responsive to those. OBI is a solid place for my family. We've been here since my children were very young. Being part, of in, uh, being part of such a remote environment has had its challenges, and it's definitely remote. <clears throat> but in the big picture, we have been more blessed than challenged. We have be, become strong as a family unit. We spend a lot of the time together, even with our busy schedules. Being part of this tight community allows us to invest in each other's lives by coming to a basketball game or supporting my son at his tennis court, tennis match. We're also blessed by our neighbors that live near us, whether it's a friend that is trained as an EMT or a simple cup of tea on the front porch. I'm often overwhelmed by the relationships that the Lord's put me. I wanted to take a few moments to thank Broadway Baptist Church for their generosity and support of all that we're doing here at OBI. And real sweet note, she'll put a picture of her and her family, but this is very kind. We're, as you give to our church, and, uh, and you put money in the offering plate, we're able, we have 1% of every dollar given goes into what we call the missions fund. And Danny Snyder and the missions team, they manage that, and at the end of the year, of each year, they're able to give a nice, generous gift to Oneida Baptist Institute. So thank you for giving. That was certainly very special there for, um, from the art teacher and the Bible teacher with that. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. <clears throat> We're going to study three things here. Um, 
We're going to study the parable of the dishonest manager. Then we're going to get on kingdom values, which is going to get us actually a lot, uh, much of the conversation is going to be about divorce and remarriage. Then we're going to get down to the rich man and Lazarus. But I wanted to cover divorce and remarriage last because I have a PowerPoint slide about that because it's so applicable for today because we obviously live in a divorce and a remarriage culture. So one of the great things when you preach through the Bible and you go through books of the Bible like this, you have to, whatever comes up is what you have to address. So that's certainly what we're going to be addressing tonight because if Jesus spoke about it, we need to talk about it as well. So open your Bibles, follow along here, Luke chapter 16. The first one here we're going to see is the parable of the dishonest manager. I think my trial sermon, this is what I preached on. And I want to tell you what, a couple of years ago what this is about. The parable of the dishonest manager. I'll tell you the in- ending of it before we even read. It's about a man who, um, who's been dishonest. And he's going to realize that he's about to lose his job and about be held accountable for his dishonesty. The, the chain's about to get jerked on him. So... What he does is he's very shrewd. He is someone who realizes, you know what, what am I going to do? I'm about to lose my job. I don't have the money. And um, I need to use these last few weeks maybe I have to go ahead and rebuild some friendships with others before I'm homeless and I'm in desperate need. Basically, the guy's realizing I'm about to be on the streets But I need to go ahead and start being a good friend to people and cut them some good deals so that when I'm homeless and I'm in need of a lending and a helping hand, since I was just so generous to you, you can certainly help me back. And what Jesus is telling with this is the lost people, the people of this age, he describes them, are very shrewd. Now, Jesus isn't supporting dishonesty. What he's supporting, and see, then he goes on to say, the, but, the, but, but the people of God, the believers, many ways they're not very shrewd. Well, the purpose of this parable is actually about how to use what God has given us shrewdly to advance the kingdom. Let me illustrate this. <clears throat> I, um, <clears throat> you know, we have children. So um, <laughs> we, um, the children have friends and um, I pick them up on Sunday nights, Wednesday nights. I pay for their dinner. I pay for them if they go to camp or whatever trips. Now, this isn't just our children. I'm paying for the other kids, too. Because I know some of the people that we're bringing to church, if it costs $6 to eat a meal down in Darlene's kitchen, they wouldn't come. So shrewdness is saying, okay, how am I going to use my resources to get people to church? How am I going to use what I have to invite people, make it entertaining for other people to come? So that's what um, we see here. You use your resources that you've been given to advance the kingdom. Verse, verse 1, uh, Luke chapter 16. Now he said to his disciples, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account for all your management, because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I'm removed from my management position, people will welcome me into their home. So it's basically... You know, a lot of days in um, a lot of businesses, um, if you get fired or you lose your job, you know, immediately they usher you out the door. And this is why. Because this guy, he, he's getting some, he's got a couple of weeks, so he think, well, okay, well, if I'm still going to be in a position, I'm going to cut some deals so that when I'm gone, it helps me. And what Jesus is saying here is the guy's pretty smart. He's thinking advance. Instead of being bitter and sitting there arguing, he realizes it's, gone, it's over for him. So now we're going to make the best of this situation. <clears throat> I know what I'll do. Verse 4, or skipping down verse 5 now. So he summoned each one of his master's debitors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. 
100 measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he said. Sit down quickly, and you got to do it quickly. Can't wait on this. And write 50. What a bargain. You got 50% discount right there. Next, he asked another one, how much do you owe? 100 measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he said, and write 80. So you got a 20% discount. The master praised. Now look at this. The master, the guy who owns everything, praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, I believe the parable stops right there because now it's going to shift. Jesus is going to start giving his interpretation. The master, the guy who owns everything, he realizes, you know what? This guy who worked for me, he wasn't as dumb as everybody thought. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, he was ripping me off, but then we realized he was about to lose his job. He went and quickly cut some 50% bargain deals and 20% bargain deals so that he'd have some friends when he no longer had a job. And, and the master praised him for that. So you think, well, what are we praising dishonesty here? Jesus is praising the shrewdness for saying if the people of God were shrewd in advancing the kingdom, it would be a benefit. Look what he says. Verse 8, now this is the main point. For the children of this age, who are the children of this age? These are lost people. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light. We are the children of light in dealing with their own people. That was a very wise statement. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, and of course it always does, they may welcome you into their eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in, in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What's powerful about this is Jesus is telling us you need to find the genuine wealth. Because if you are faithful a little, God will bless you with much more. Genuine wealth, and he uses that word there in verse 11. He, he says, okay, there's this worldly wealth out there, and there's genuine wealth. You want to take genuine wealth, which is a, an acknowledgement that what you have, all, everything comes from God, and you're using what you have to advance the kingdom. That's what's so important about this. <clears throat> and then, you, you, what will happen from that is you're shrewd with it. God will bless you with even more. And the question for us tonight is, we as believers, are we using what God has given us, not just genuinely, but also shrewdly for the kingdom? Shrewdly is when next month we have a men's um, wild game dinner. It'll be here at the church. And I don't even know if there's going to be a mission on it, but say it costs five, ten bucks to ten. You know, that's just the men just met and we're talking about it. Shrewdly is when you go invite your friend to come and say, Well, I'll pay, I'll buy your ticket. Even though it's costing you extra five or ten bucks, that's getting them there. That's what it means to be shrewd. Shrewd's when you're paying for your kids friends to go to camp too because you not only are they your children's friends but they need to hear the gospel and if they get to go free they'll take advantage of that you're using what you have to advance the kingdom shrewdly is when you invite your grandchildren over your house for the weekend and say yeah you come and we'll eat mcdonald's all day and ice cream and play video games but you've got to go to church that's being shrewd now, they get whatever they want but they also have to come learn about the lord so that, that's what Jesus is telling us here. And he's saying the people of this age, worldly people in many ways, they think more shrewdly. But they think, look, here's the difference, and this is the end of this. They think shrewdly 
for selfish reasons. This is what you want to write down. Here's the takeaway. Worldly people think truly for selfish reasons. Believers, kingdom-minded people, think shrewdly to advance the mission of the kingdom of God, to lead people to Christ. Are you being shrewd with what you have so folks can get saved and hear about Jesus? It's not for my selfish, it's actually for them. So that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. He's saying you can't serve both God and money. If you're selfish, you're going to serve money. If you love the Lord, you're going to serve God. But you can be shrewd while still serving God. All right, skip down here. We're going to skip verses 14 through 18 because we're going to come back to that because we're going to get stuck there. All right, verse 19. Skip down to your Bibles. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31. I want to tell you about this story here. This is about hell. There's no better story in the Bible than um, really that Jesus illustrates that opens us, gives us more knowledge about what hell is really like. Now, what's interesting about this, uh, usually this is the section here in the book of Luke where we see a bunch of parables. But what's interesting is um, this doesn't say it's a parable. Verse 16, we're never told this is a parable. Remember, a parable is a story that doesn't really occur. It's symbolic of something else. So we know from this story this likely happened. All right, Luke 16, 19. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table. But instead, the dogs would come and lick his sores. Dogs would be just an unclean animal. I mean, it's just a pitiful situation. Lazarus had nothing. He got scraps from the rich man's table, and the dogs were giving him relief. <clears throat> One day, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. So here, understand our picture here. Rich man, poor man. The rich man dies and he goes to hell. And while he's looking there, also the man who always was right outside his gate begging, the poor man, he died too, same time. And he's, he's up there with Abraham in heaven. And it says he's in torment. And he looks up and he sees, he recognizes this man who used to beg in heaven. So what's happened here? Jesus has pulled back the curtain. Only place in the Bible we see this to show this is the contrast between heaven and hell. You know, when you read Jesus' teaching, so, you know what Jesus talked about the most? Money and hell. That really, and also the kingdom of God. That's, that's the, Jesus' message. If you read about something he preached on, he's talking about money, he's talking about hell, he's talking about heaven. That is the message that Jesus goes around teaching. He's sharing it here. Verse 24. Father Abraham, he called out. This, the man speaking in, from hell. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame. So he's saying, God, I need help here. I'm in agony. I need, you know, have someone, have mercy on me suffering here in hell. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides, all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you. So those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. A chasm here was fixed, and what happened was... This man in hell is looking up, talking to Abraham. And Abraham is saying, there's no way. 
God has created a barrier so that someone in hell, once someone goes to hell, they have no opportunity ever. There's not a waiting room. There's not a purgatory. There's no way for purging your sins at the end. When Jesus comes back or you pass away, your eternal fate is sealed. This is why the urgency of the gospel is so important. This is why you cannot delay in accepting Christ. This is why you don't put off any decision that the Lord wants you to make because you are not promised tomorrow. <clears throat> so this is very clear. There's no way of uh, jumping over. Now, this is what's scary. Verse 27, there's a shift here because Abraham just informed this rich man that he is stuck there in hell forever. So now the rich man in hell begins doing evangelism. You know, what's sad about it is people in hell care more about people here on earth than other people on earth care about the folks on earth. Because look at what he says here. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him, him being uh, Lazarus, the man in heaven, you know, the poor man in heaven, to my father's house. Because I have five brothers. So what he's saying here is, even though he might not be able to come, Lazarus might not be able to come here to me, maybe he could go back to earth and go inform my brothers about what's going on if they don't repent. So do you see the request? Because we can't go to hell, so maybe he could leave heaven and go to earth. So let's see if we can do that. So you're going to please send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. This man is broken over his five brothers. He's worried that his brothers are going to suffer the same agony as he is. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. It's like the same old book. Nothing's changed. They've got Moses. They've got the prophets. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Do you know who did rise from the dead? Jesus rose from the dead. And they still didn't listen. Even today, people still do not listen to Jesus. They still do not repent. They do not listen to Moses and the prophets, and they do not listen to someone who even rose from the dead. We, what's powerful about this story is how this should impact us, is if this rich man in hell is concerned over his, their brother's lostness, we also should be concerned about people we know. Listen, probably every single person here know, has a family member or a loved one who does not know the Lord. And you need to be able to say, do I want someone whom I love to be at this place that this rich man's at? The fire is never quenched. It's described as a place of torment. He's begging for even a drop of water to cool his tongue. This is a very vivid description of people who die without Christ. Broadway, we are all to be evangelists. An evangelist is someone who tells another soul how to be saved. Can you lead someone to Christ? Can you, can you lead someone, prevent someone from going to hell? That's the story we see here. And listen, if the man from hell is broken over his brothers, surely we should be broken over lost folks today. We are surrounded by people who do not know the Lord. And we need to be shrewd in the ways we invite them and share the gospel with them. God's doing a great thing here at our church. Do you notice there were new faces here? He's bringing the folks to our church. The visitor cards are coming in. Y'all should be looking around, seeing new faces every single Sunday.
And a lot of these folks, you can't assume, a lot of these folks are lost. They don't know the Lord. And they might not be ready to walk down the aisle, but they're gonna, they, a lot of these folks give church one chance. They'll say, I'll come and see how it is. I'll see if the people are friendly. I'll see how folks are going to treat me. I'll see if they take time to pour their life and invest me and get to know who I am and what I'm dealing with. Bible's telling us, Jesus is telling us, we need to be shrewd in sharing the gospel. All right, flip back in your Bible. Here's our last and our lengthiest section we're about to read. And we're going to get the PowerPoint clicker is going to work here, according to the sound team. Verse 14, kingdom values. Jesus is going to teach us here about uh, some beliefs, what it's like in according to um, uh, their standard, God's standard here. The Pharisees, I'm in Luke chapter 16, verse 14, who were lovers of money, what a description of them, were listening to all these things and scoping at him. And he told them, so they're just, they love their money, they're mocking Jesus. And he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. The law and the prophets were until John since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. But it is easier (coughs) for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. Now this is real important. What Jesus is doing here is he's prefacing. He says, guys, Pharisees, you love your money, you love your position, you love your fame, but you know what the Bible says here is from the very beginning all the way up to John the Baptist, it's proclaiming the same message. And not one letter of that law is going to change. That means you're expected to still, what I'm saying, what Jesus is saying, is I'm fulfilling what's already been written in your Old Testaments or your Hebrew Bibles or your Torah. So now look at this. Now he's kind of prefacing and saying, the, God's law never changes. What he says in the Old Testament is reconfirmed and recommitted in the New Testament through Christ, who's the Messiah. So now he makes this interesting statement. Now it's really interesting about this. I want to tell you why. <clears throat> the Pharisees, on the issue of divorce, they were very loose with the law. The law on the divorce is found in Deuteronomy uh, Yes, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to turn there a little bit. And we're going to look at it. In fact, before we read, I'll tell you this, before I read verse 18, let's turn back in our Bibles. Because I want you to know, because all, all New Testament teaching on divorce and remarriage is coming from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Everything Jesus says, everything Paul says, is just really just commentary on these four verses. And what's, what happened here is the folks, the Pharisees, were taking this and were twisting the law. All right. Don't you follow along your Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Now you read this Bible verse, and you think, well, my goodness. You know, when I married Sherry, I thought she was going to be an Alabama fan. I found out on the honeymoon, she cheers for Auburn. I'm displeased by this. I get my certificate. I'm unhappy. I fill it out. Ma'am, here's your certificate. Here's your papers. There's the door. Good luck. Have a good life. And you can go cheer for Auburn on the way out the door. That is how the Pharisees, they're saying, if you find something displeasing, for whatever reason. All right, verse 2. If after leaving his house... She goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, 
writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. Or if he dies, so understand what happened. So then Sherry goes out, Auburn fan goes out, and she gets remarried. A new man, and she thought this guy she married was an Auburn fan, but he turned out to be a Kentucky fan. So then she, he's unhappy with her because they, they were fooled in who they cheered for. So he's not happy either. So he fills out his divorce certificate, says, I, I, I'm a U.K. fan. I don't want to marry these War Eagle folks. So, Sherry, here's your divorce certificate. Now she's been divorced twice, two times she's divorced. So now look what happens here. We're in verse 3. And the, we're in Deuteronomy 24, 3. And the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her and sends her away from his house, or he dies. The first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled. Now this is interesting here. Okay? I was the first husband. All of a sudden, Deuteronomy 24.4 says, I can't remarry her because she's been defiled. And it said the second man, the key word is in verse 3. Okay, If you go back to verse 3, this second man, this UK man was the second man. He was unhappy with her or he even dies. He's dead. Why can't Sherry come back and marry me? Her first husband. That's the question. It says here in verse 4, she has been defiled because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So let's try to understand what's happening here. It's really unusual. And you could certainly see how the Pharisees, this is all what they're doing. They're taking these four verses and they're creating, hey, if you're unhappy with your wife, go ahead and send her a certificate of divorce and send her away. You're free now. You've released, you've released her. Je Moses saying that according to verse 4, that the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled. And if you have the New American Standard Bible, that, that word in the Hebrew says that it would be an abomination to remarry her. So the question is for us, and we're going to answer this tonight, and Jesus is going to answer this, what defiled her? What made her defiled? Because why can't her first husband take her back? After all, she, uh, she got, you know, her, first, her second husband, that UK guy, he's dead. It says he died in verse 3, or he divorced her. Why can't I remarry her? What defiled Sherry was the second remarriage. Because in the Bible, we won't turn there, but Genesis 2.24 actually tells us that when a husband and wife come together, they unite and become one flesh. Divorce rips apart that one flesh. Marriage is one flesh. It's two people, one man and one woman. Now I want you to understand, this you say, Pastor, what about gay marriage? Gay marriage actually doesn't even exist. Marriage, by definition, is actually one man and one woman. And then they, they cleave, weave, and come together, according to Genesis 2.24. There's actually no such thing as gay marriage or homosexual marriage. It's, it's biologically impossible. The purpose of marriage is for people to come together and, that, and to reproduce the human race and create families. That's God's plan we see here. So we see here in Deuteronomy 24 that this woman in verse 4, she, uh, she cannot go back and remarry her first, her first husband because she's been defiled. So that. All right, now. Let's now flip in our Bibles, and we're going to see all throughout the New Testament about this. This is important for us today because, I tell you, we need to know what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage. Because the truth is, we all know folks, and if not ourselves, we've been divorced and remarried, and we need to know what does Scripture say about it. Because 
I'll tell you, it's not being preached and taught in churches today. It's not very popular. And you, uh, in many ways, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough teaching, but it's actually very clear here in the Bible. Back here in Luke, Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Hopefully you kept your finger here. Everyone who divorces, Jesus speaking, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. So let's look at this. Jesus is saying, everyone, that's me, I divorce Sherry, and I marry another woman, I go out and marry someone else, I have committed adultery. Now, what, is the, what, what, was, what was the adultery part? The adultery came in on the remarriage. Because remember, marriage, only God can break a marriage. And that's by death. We're going to see that in Romans chapter 7, verse 2, in a little bit. And everyone, look at this, and everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That means if Sherry divorces me, or I divorce her and she's divorced, and according to the Bible, in Romans 7, 2, only, only death releases someone from a marriage, She's not eligible, according to the Bible, to get remarried. So Jesus is saying here, everyone who goes and marries a divorced woman, you're actually committing adultery. That phrase committing adultery means it's a sin. It's wrong. It's, it's something you should not do. It breaks the seventh commandment, remarriage. So we see Jesus is condemning <clears throat> specifically remarriage right there in Luke 16, 18. So let me try my little clicker here. So we're going to answer some questions here. What does Scripture say about divorce and remarriage? Only death releases you from marriage. If someone's married, according to the Bible, if they don't want to be married anymore, they need to kill their spouse or hope their spouse dies, and then all of a sudden they are released from their, with their marriage vows, because death releases you from that. Number two, divorce is allowed. We're, we'll turn here, actually, in a little bit. You can, in fact, go ahead and turn there in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, 5, verse 32. It's verses 31 and 32. Divorce is allowed in two circumstances. And Jesus is going to tell us, if your spouse commits sexual immorality, and that's in Matthew 5, 32, it's also in Matthew 19, 9, or, if you're married to an unbeliever and the unbelieving spouse leaves. That means, say, I married Sherry. I thought she was going to be a believer. On our honeymoon, I thought, my goodness, she's not even saved. And then after that, two weeks later, she goes wild and she runs away. And then she goes and files for a divorce. The Bible says if, that's an, if she's an unbeliever and she leaves you and she divorces you, you just let them leave. Now, Jesus, is, the Bible's telling us here, in that case there in 1 Corinthians 7.15, and in the case of sexual immorality, divorce is permitted. In fact, let's turn there in our Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. I'll tell you, if you write down all these Bible verses, you will know everything in the Scriptures about divorce and remarriage. It says here, verse 31, and this is on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Right there next to the Sea of Galilee, he's talking about this. Here we are 2,000 years later. Same old problems that Jesus was addressing, we still address today. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. Where's that Bible verse? We just read it. That's Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. The Pharisees were taking that and twisting it, and were just passing out divorce certificates left and right. But I tell you, Jesus is saying here, everyone who divorces his wife except in a case of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. I mean, Jesus is saying here, the only way you can get divorced, if you're going to get divorced, it has to be for sexual immorality. And that means your spouse commits sexual sin against you. And that Jesus is saying then, you're permitted to get divorced. Then that raises the question, okay, well then what about remarriage? So if I'm permitted to get divorced, understand there's two categories we're talking about. We're talking about one's divorce, and the second one's remarriage. 
Well, he answers the remarriage questions. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is saying, okay, you can go get divorced if you want to. If your spouse cheats on you, fine. Give them that certificate of divorce and just let them go. That's what you want to do. But you're not allowed to get remarried. Because here's why. Here's the problem with that. If this was the case, all you would have to do to justify getting married over and over and over and over again is says, well, my spouse committed sexual immorality. They looked at pornography. They lusted after another woman. I caught them with a Playboy magazine. Whatever, they didn't fulfill my sexual needs. Whatever you could come up with for the category sexual immorality, then you could justify being married multiple times. Jesus is saying in verse 32 here, you can get divorced. I'll let you get divorced, but you're not allowed to get remarried because even though you've broken that bond, that Genesis 2.24 bond, God hasn't. The only way to break a marriage is through death. So that means in God's eyes, you're still actually married even though you're divorced. That's what Jesus is saying here. All right, let's keep moving here. Let's look at the third one. Nowhere in the Bible is divorce is a divorced person with a living ex-spouse permitted to remarry. We never see that. And obviously, that's very clear there in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. So let's, this brings us to today. So <clears throat> what, if you've, what if you married a divorced person? Because the reality is there's remarriages all around us. So what do you do if you have remarried or you're thinking about or maybe one day you might marry or your parents or your grandparents or your children have married a divorced person. Only God can end a marriage. But remaining in a second marriage is right. Meaning, just because you've remarried doesn't mean you need to go break off your second marriage. You should remain in the commitment that you're obviously in. Number two, if you are divorced and remarried, keep your promise. Don't break your vows a second time. Meaning, if you have gotten remarried, you should remain remarried and you keep your promises. Number three, um, you know, this is the problem with the clicker. <clears throat> Admit it should not have happened. Ask forgiveness from God, each other, and perhaps, I know it sounds crazy, your former spouses. One of the things about uh, marriage counseling <clears throat> is if you are in a marriage difficulty, if you're in a, if, if, you're remarried, and especially if you have children with your first spouse, and you had a bitter divorce and it was a terrible ending, you know, there might be times that you have to go and ask for forgiveness. You said, this was wrong. I should not have treated you this way. I should have acted. This is spiritual maturity. This is what it means to grow as a believer. Said, I, should, I need to ask for forgiveness for how I treated you, and even how I possibly ended this marriage. So this is what happens if, you're, if you've married a divorced person. No second marriage should be broken up to restore a first one. So say you got remarried, and say you got saved later in life. You don't just go back and say, well, you know what? I think I'm going to go back to my first husband now because, you know, maybe he wasn't that bad after all. If you do that, according to Deuteronomy 24, the New American Standard Bible describes that as an abomination. Because what's happened is that person in that example in Deuteronomy 24, once they became, Sherry became defiled by that second marriage. She was no longer just to go back to her first, her first husband. Technically, the only way that she would be released from her marriage vows really her first and her second husband had died so with that all right so this brings us to the question here and the uh, things we're going to see <clears throat> i don't know if you can see these bullet points but here's some biblical examples of what happens when you've made maybe a, a poor decision because we see all throughout the scriptures that um you know bad vows were actually made 
One of the things what happened with uh, Joshua, the Israelites, they actually made a bad vow with the Gibeonites. Before they, made, they could have dealt with them over some land. In Joshua chapter 9, before they had sought the Lord, and they found out they were taken advantage of. But they had to keep their promise. They, had to allow, they couldn't attack the Gibeonites because they didn't seek the Lord, and they listened to some bad instructions from them. They were fooled and dubbed. But what happened is once they made that vow and the Gibeonites got it in writing, the Israelites couldn't attack them. And Joshua said, I can't go back and attack you because I've made a vow. What Joshua was doing this is very important. When you make a vow with someone, even if it's a bad vow and you got fooled, you are still, you're expected to honor that. And that means the Bible goes throughout the Old and the New Testament you hold, you honor what you say. You honor your word. Number two, I have to do that. Jesus acknowledged, now this is interesting. Say, what about, uh, what about the lady in John chapter 4? Jesus acknowledged that the woman at the well had five husbands. Remember, Jesus met this woman. She had five husbands. And he distinguished each. What's interesting about that is you say, well, Daniel, our second and third marriages, are they real marriages? And the question is, yes, because Jesus, in John chapter 4, told this woman, says, woman, you've been married five times, and the man you're living with now, he's not even your husband. He's the live-in boyfriend. But what's powerful about that, Jesus used the word husband to describe her, her relationships with those men. He didn't say, well, you're just married one time, and then you've got five or six extra boyfriends over here you've had sexual relations with. He said, no, you actually have five husbands. You've been married five times. You have a polygamous marriage, a polygamous life. And now your living boyfriend, he's not, you're not even married to him. <clears throat> and do you know that woman was saved? She gave her life to Christ. Jesus referred, last thing here, <clears throat> Jesus referred to a wrongly entered marriage as a marriage. It's interesting. In what we just read there, if you go back to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, and that was that very last phrase about if you marry a divorced person, it's adultery. But you're still married. It's not a fake marriage. It's not a pretend marriage. It's still a marriage. Even though it's not God's biblical standard, it's still a legally binding marriage. So this brings us to, okay, well that's great. Well, here we are in 2019. How does this apply to us? This is what we should do. Number one, we need to be encourage people to stay married. You should never encourage someone to get divorced. Now, there might be times they need to be separated. There needs to be extensive counseling. There needs to be times where they um, are, you know, maybe they get detained possibly. They need to really get help. But going around encouraging people to get divorced, that's breaking God's standard of marriage. Number two, what happens, what do you do when maybe you're invited to someone to attend a wedding to someone who's second or third marriage? I personally, I, I don't go to remarriages. I don't perform remarriages. I get asked all the time, uh, should our church perform remarriages? I would say no. Uh, I'm sure over the years it has. Uh, here at our church, um, uh, uh, being divorced and it, you'll see it's also in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it disqualifies you for certain leadership positions like being a deacon, uh, being a pastor. So there are biblical standards that we see that divorce and remarriage would disqualify someone for certain leadership position. What we as Bible-believing Christians have to do, we have to hang on God's Word to say, I'm going to stand on what God has spoken truth about divorce and remarriage. Now, if you know someone's remarried, or I mean, my sister, unfortunately, she's remarried. Sherry and I didn't go to the wedding. We didn't send a gift. I mean, but I don't go there and pretend the guy's a fake man when I see him over Christmas and Thanksgiving. I'm incredibly nice to him. But there's a difference when you show up at a wedding and you participate and you help plan it and pay for it. Where the best thing, if you have children that are 
or grandchildren who are struggling with this, you need to show them these scriptures. You need to get this sermon and say, Pastor, I want to go through this, sit down with them, and see what the scriptures say. From my experience with folks, folks who are wrestling with this, in a kind and a loving way, if you just show, here's what the Bible says, they will be receptive to that. You never want to have a condescending or preaching attitude towards them. You love people, and you show them what the scriptures say. This is what it means to be a biblical Christian. This is what it means to stand on God's Word. Listen, our church, we love divorced people. We love remarried people. The gospel calls everyone home. That woman at the well in John chapter 5, or John chapter 4, she had five husbands, and she had a live-in boyfriend, and she got saved. Jesus saved her new life came into her life she met the messiah the living water she had been going to this one well and she met the the well that never ends so our responsibility for us is we want to hold to a high standard as a biblical christian as a biblical church of what the definition of divorce and remarriage is yet also those that have been they they've been broken by divorce and remarriage we want to minister to them and also share and love through them with the gospel. That's what we see here. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us. He's saying Deuteronomy 24 is a high standard. This attitude of just going around and issuing out a certificate of divorce, Jesus' message for us, I want to end on this. <clears throat> if you're here and you're thinking about getting divorced, Jesus is saying, you want a divorce? Fine. You go get your divorce. If that's what you hate your spouse, you, well, whatever reason you've come up with, and <clears throat> whatever your justification, you go get your divorce. That's because you have a hard heart. And that's what he said in Matthew chapter 19. But you're not allowed to get remarried. What defiles the person is actually the, the remarriage. That's when all of a sudden they've now entered into two marriages, even in God's eyes, because only God can break a marriage. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray you help open up our minds and remind us and show us what the Bible teaches about marriage, remarriage, divorce. Lord, it's an issue for all of us. It's one we should take serious. It's one we should know. Lord, I just pray this message, it binds to our hearts and it instill it upon us. Lord, I pray as we go out, that we will be rooted in your word. I thank you for what you're doing in our church. Lord, we just pray that we are a gospel-centered, gospel-preaching church. I pray there's anyone here that needs to make a decision that tonight they will make it for you. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. David Dale's going to lead us in our song. I'll invite everyone to stand up. This will be our hymn of invitation for you to respond. We'll sing together just as I am. Just as I am with us. But that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. And waiting not to rid my soul of one dark one to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And we're going to sing a little chorus that we sang earlier. Precious name, oh how sweet. Precious name, oh how sweet. Hope of earth and joy of heaven. Precious name, oh how 
sweet hope of earth and joy of heaven. 